turn your attention this morning to the book of Hosea, which uh, I anticipate at this time to be uh, our last message to be brought uh, from this book. Um, we want to end this. Uh, we want to end this on a good note, so to speak. Um, last week we spoke to you on many of the sins of Ephraim that are laid out in this book, and uh, we did not cover all of them. Uh, you surely at some point during this month that we have given you three or four sermons on this, somebody has read the book. Surely at some point you have. Uh, you can read it fairly quickly. Uh, most of us could probably either listen to it uh, on our way to or from work or during a lunch hour. You could read it. It's, it's not that long. Not near as long as Matthew or Isaiah or Ezekiel that are, or the Psalms is like four hours to read it. Challenge accepted, right? Uh, it's a good book. It's a challenging book. Uh, and the reason that we, we want to end this on what we would call the gospel of grace in Hosea is it when we looked last week at the sins of Ephraim, if you can ever grasp the depravity of man, then the doctrine of grace is its sweetest. If you can ever understand just how ruined and bankrupt and sinful man is, then you will be ready to hear the message of salvation by grace. There's a lot of us in our life that have health problems, right? And sometimes we ignore them because we don't think they're that significant. But if you ever finally do to go to the doctor and the doctor says it's this way and not the way you thought, then life takes a different perspective. I mean, <clears throat> when I was in high school, I ran track, ran the mile, I ran the 440 dash, the mile relay. You take your pick. I ran a lot in high school. If you used to ask me to run a mile now, the first thing I'd do is ask where my car keys are. Uh, if I if I had to leave anywhere in, in a hurry, I'd probably die before I got to the mailbox. I'm just that out of shape and unhealthy because running does not appeal to me right now. But if I go to the doctor and he says, hey, if you, uh, you eat another greasy burger or another fried chicken, you're going to wind up in the hospital or worse. It's usually at that point we begin to change our diet and our habits in life, correct? Once you see just exactly how deplorable the sinful nature of man is, that's what makes the message of grace all the more sweeter. Because you realize at that point exactly what it took for God to deal with not with everybody else, but what it took for God to deal with you. As you read through Hosea, as we said, for the most part, there's an overwhelming uh, dissatisfaction that God has uh, with the nation of Israel. 
14 chapters of an overwhelming dissatisfaction with the nation of Israel. Um, one of the key thoughts to this book is the idea of what would happen if a nation actually fully repented back to their God. Remember, this is not a book that invites you to know God. This is a book that invites you to have fellowship with God. This is a message to us, the church. This is a message to you, God's people. And the book lines lays out for us just exactly what might happen in your life if you actually fully repented back to God. Because the reality is, is that, that I don't know you. I really don't know you. You really don't know me. But God knows every one of us. And that was what we pointed out uh, here in Hosea chapter 7 and verse 2. Uh, that they consider not in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. And now their own doings have beset them about. They are before my face. Um, when the Lord, the Lord says here that their doings, their own doings have beset them about. This the problems that Ephraim has, the problem that the nation of Israel have, the problem that you have, they are not things that God has predestined before the world began. God did not predestinate things to occur in your life. He did not predestinate you to sin. He did not predestinate you to be here. He did not predestinate you to fall. That's our choice. When Adam sinned, Adam sinned of his own accord. And we have to look at our own life and say, it's not anybody else's fault that I'm the way I am. The majority of it is, it's my fault. I've looked at things in life. I've made my decisions. I've made bad decisions. And I'm where I am today from a negative standpoint because of what I have done in my life. If there's anything good about me, anything good about you, We'll have to agree with the Apostle Paul who says, I am that I am by the grace of God. The fact that I'm not dead in the ditch somewhere is by the grace of God. The fact that I didn't do something foolish and stupid when I was younger and wind up dead somewhere is by the grace of God. So throughout this book, there is, yes, an overwhelming... Uh, dissatisfaction with the nation with the nation of Israel, but here and there, little by little, we see the thorns of Ephraim's life and the thorns of his sins that beset him, and little by little we look amongst the many thorns that are located in the book of Hosea, and there's a rose here or there among the thorn bushes. One of the first ones that we'll find out is in chapter one. Here's an interesting thing here. When you look in Hosea chapter 1, the first verse talks about the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. He sets a timeline for when this occurred. What's interesting about this is the story of Hosea and the things that are laid out here uh, 
parallel the time of Israel that's located in 2 Kings, uh, 2 Kings 14. Um, if you want to turn there, you can. Otherwise, I'll just turn there and read it to you. That it says here in 2 Kings 14 and verse 23 that in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria and reigned 41 years. So a lot of the things that are contained in the book of Hosea can be traced back to 2 Kings, and you can follow some of those things through that book. And here's one of them we're going to talk about here in Hosea chapter 1. Uh, he says, I will have verse 7. Hosea 1 verse 7 says, I will have mercy upon the house of Judah and will save them by the Lord their God and will not save them by bow, nor by sword, nor by battle, nor by horses, nor by horsemen. So there's, there's a great battle that needs to occur. There's something that needs to be dealt with. And God said, I will deal with it, and I will save them, and I will deliver them, not by their effort, but by what? By my grace, essentially, is what this is. This story is told to us in 2 Kings chapter 19, or an illustration to this story is told to us in 2 Kings 19 and verse 35. Where it says, it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians an hundred, fourscore, and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. This is the portion of scripture that we've quoted many times where an angel of the Lord in one night killed 185,000 men of King Sennacherib's army. Who went to fight for Israel? God did. Who needs to go to fight for you? God does. So oftentimes when we get involved with something and so oftentimes when we try and figure the situation out and so oftentimes when we try to bring about a, a conclusion that we think is right, don't we oftentimes mess up? And God knows far more than we do. What you're going to learn in, in the book of Hosea, we're early in the sermon, so most people are fresh in mind right now, hadn't fallen asleep and dozed off yet, so you might remember this. We know the Bible teaches the sovereign grace of God. It is free to us without charge. So someone might come up and say, well, if God has saved me despite what I do, then what does it matter what I do? Heaven is your home. And heaven will be your home despite how hard you work not to get there. But you might go through hell in the process of getting there. The grace of God does not guarantee that God will deliver us from foolishness down here in this life. As a matter of fact, throughout this book, there are several. God goes back and He rehearses His history with Israel throughout the book of Hosea. And there's a portion in here where He reminds them that I gave you a king at one time, but I also took away that king in my wrath. I'm talking about King Saul, son of Kish, 
son of Cush. He says, I gave you this king and I took him away. And and one thing you note about that is when Samuel the prophet is reminding Israel over there in 1 Samuel what, 8, 9, something like that, where, where Saul is being chosen, he says, you're going to choose this king. This king is going to take your children. He's going to take your people. He's going to really destroy your land. It's going to be a, a hard and heavy thing. In other words, elections have consequences. And he says to them, he says, when you cry out unto your God in the midst of this, God will not answer. You think it's bad now. You wait till God doesn't answer. So if you have the idea, well, we're all saved by grace. What does it matter what we do? We're all going to go to heaven. Um, <clears throat> I'd rather go to, go to heaven on an easy, comfortable life rather than beating myself to death the whole way there. When Paul says that the, the sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us, it's one thing to suffer at the hands of someone else. It's another thing to suffer at your own hands. And Paul, uh, P- Peter addresses that in his, in his book. He says, what, if, what and if you suffer uh, for doing good? That, that's all well and good. If you suffer for doing what's right, that's one thing. But if you suffer for doing what's wrong, something completely different. In uh, chapter 2 of Hosea, there's another little rose that's dropped off here. Hosea chapter 2 and verse 15. He says, well, I will give her her vineyards from thence in the valley of Achor for a door of hope. We addressed this portion of Hosea in, I believe, the first sermon uh, that we did on this. The, valley, the door of, of Achor was the place over in Joshua chapter 7 where Achan had stolen all the goods out of Babylon. When they went in to destroy the city and Achan stole those Babylonian garments there from the, from the city of Jericho, which he should not have done. Israel lost the war at Ai because of that. Once Achan was exposed and once the sin was brought out and Achan was stoned and his family and all his herds, the punishment was lifted. And Israel went on on to defeat Ai. In your life, once the sin is lifted... You can move forward. There's a great weight on my life. There's a great weight on your life when you know you're doing something wrong. And you ought to turn from it. You know that. There's a great burden that follows you and drags you down in life when you know you're not doing what's right. Well, there's a great burden in life at all that hinders us in our daily walk with God, is there not? And do we not sing the song, when I wake in His likeness, then will I be satisfied? There's not really anything in this life that's going to make me satisfied. There's a lot of things in life I enjoy more than anything else. I enjoy being here on Sunday morning more than anything else. I enjoy the rest of the week. 
I'd just as soon cut off Monday through Saturday and just be here the rest of the time. But I can't do that. But one day, Monday through Saturday, will be cut off. And we will stand in the presence of God for an eternal worship service for the rest of our days. And we will be satisfied at that point. When sin itself is completely removed from us, then we can move forward. Well, he says, I'll give you this door of hope. Here's a door of hope. In the midst of these thorny bushes, here's a little rose. Here's a door of hope. But notice what he says. And she shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came out of the land of Egypt. Notice verse 16 for me. We'll go back. In verse 16, and it shall be at that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me Ishai, and shalt call me no more Baalite. Notice that phrase, at that day. You see that? The Old Testament's full of that. It is full of that phrase, at that day. You know what we're talking about? We're talking about the coming of Messiah. That there's coming a time when Messiah will come, when the Lord Jesus Christ shall descend from heaven and He shall go to a cross and sin will be dealt with, dealt with completely in Him and through Him at that time. Notice what he says here, and he uses something as an illustration to this. He says that she shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. You remember Exodus chapter 14, when Israel is passing across the Red Sea? They passed all night long through this Red Sea. There was a cloud that went over them. It went behind them. It was darkness to the Egyptians, and they could not pursue them. And it was light to the Israelites so that they could see where they were going, and it it guarded them all that night till they passed over the Red Sea. Well, when they passed over the Red Sea, the cloud lifted. Pharaoh's army says, hey, they did that. We can do that too. They believed in their heart they could do that. Easy believism. Oh, if you just believe, you can accomplish anything. They believed that they could accomplish that. They believed that they could cross the Red Sea. And they got out there in the middle of the Red Sea, and it said that the waters closed on them and drowned every one of them. And the next morning, their bodies washed up on the shore. And here's Israel standing on the side of the shore, seeing the dead bodies of Pharaoh's army, and they rejoiced and they sang, The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. When you see the glory of God and you see the majesty of God and you see the work of God at work in your life, doesn't it make you want to sing? But when you feel cold and alone and like the Lord is clean gone forever, singing, singing doesn't help much sometimes. God says, I'll bring you to a time. I'll bring you to a point going to remind you of when you sang when you were young. And they sang when they were young when they saw their deliverance from Pharaoh's proceeding army. And we will stand in heaven for all eternity being able to see our deliverance from this sinful, wicked world. And when you get a true glimpse of the death of Christ on the cross, doesn't that make you want to tell me the story of Jesus? Right on my heart, every word. See, sometimes the Lord blesses y'all call songs that mean something. And He says, I will cause her to sing when she came 
out of Egypt. In uh, concerning this concept, turn to the book of Psalms, chapter 106. And let's notice the gospel of grace that's laid out in Psalm 106. We know that the world tells us, or that most denominations tell us nowadays, that yes, the gospel, the, the grace of God is there for you for the taking. All you have to do is paint by numbers. Just fill out this request form and you can have the grace of God. But now if you mess up in life, too bad. You can live all your days in holiness, but there at the end, the last day or the last week, you mess up and you forget to repent and hell's going to be your home because you messed up. Let's read and see what the Scriptures say. Can we, can we do that? Psalm 106, verse 6. We have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. Yep, I agree with that. Y'all agree with that? Our fathers understood not thy wonders in Egypt. They remembered not the multitude of thy mercies, but provoked him at the sea, even at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make his mighty power to be known. What saved them at the Red Sea? Was it their obedience? It was not. Was it their faithfulness? It was not. Was it their belief? It was not, because the Bible just told you they believed not. The Bible says they didn't remember His works. The Bible says that they forgot to trust Him. And the Bible says they provoked Him at the Red Sea. They're standing here at the Red Sea, and they're looking at this, and they're saying, there's a great difficulty in front of me. I cannot swim across this great sea. I have myself, I have my family, I have my children. How am I going to get across this Red Sea? It's too much for us to pass. There's mountains on the right hand. There's mountains on the left hand. We can't turn around and go back where we came from because Pharaoh's army is proceeding behind us. We're lost. There's no hope for us. This was their attitude. And there was only one person who stood in front of them and said, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And when Moses rose his hand, it says that an east wind came and parted the Red Sea. An east wind from the other side of the sea parted the sea from the other side, and it came this way, and they were then able to go across on dry ground to the safe side. My friends, the message of the gospel of grace is just that, that there is an east wind that is blown from somewhere. There's a wind that is blown from heaven's pure world down here and parted the way for us to go by. And that way is the Lord Jesus Christ. It was not our faithfulness that brought Him down here. It's His faithfulness. So many people forget. So many people forget. They read through the Bible and they see the covenants that God made with Abraham or the covenant that He made with Isaac or the covenant that He made with Jacob and they think about those covenants. But they so often forget that there was a covenant that God made with Himself before the world began. He made a covenant with God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit that He would save a people from their sins. He will not go back on what He said. You might make it harder on yourself 
getting there, but he will not go back on what he said and what he did. As a matter of fact, Paul told Timothy, he says, if we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. God cannot deny Himself. He cannot deny what He came to this earth to do. He cannot deny what He accomplished on the cross. And He cannot deny when He went back to heaven and sat down victorious, having conquered death, hell, the sin, and grave. He cannot deny Himself. He saved them from the hand of Him that hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. And the waters covered their enemies. There was not one of them left. Then believed they His works. They sang His praise. They soon forgot His works. And they waited not for His counsel. Israel is the original inventor of the bell curve. Now some of y'all have no idea what I'm talking about. But in mathematics, there's something called a bell curve. You have this graph line that goes this way and a line that goes that way. And you start down here at zero and you proceed up. And there becomes an apex where something has reached its point and it begins to come back down. And then it gets down here at the bottom and it goes back up. People who run a business use these models to judge uh, consumerism and things like that. Israel is the original inventor of the bell curve. They start down here at nothing and God does something great and they sing His praise and then they soon forget what He's got and down in the depth we go again and then God does something and brings them up out of it and they sing His praise and they go back down. It's an entire roller coaster ride the entirety of their life just like it is in your life. Thank God. Thank God He's not a man like we are. And that's one of the things that He told Hosea. He said, he said or, or, or that, uh, Hosea told Ephraim, He said, what will I do with you, Ephraim? I can't destroy you. Because I'm God. I'm not a man. I'll deal with thee. I'll deal with thee differently in ways that you don't even deal with the people who say, Hosea, Hosea uh, chapter 2, Hosea chapter 3. Hosea chapter 3. <clears throat> this is, this is an uh, interesting chapter to me. Uh, there's a little, little bit of shame and embarrassment on this for me. <clears throat> but if I don't repent, what right do I have to tell you to repent, Right? When we started this, we laid out that there was uh, a woman in chapter 1 who was unfaithful to her husband. Here in chapter 3, there's another woman that's introduced. I do believe that the principle of whether this is a different woman than the first woman has some validity. Just as much as when God destroyed the earth with a flood, He started over with Noah, and yet it made no difference. That's the principle kind of that's laid out here in chapter 3. We had a woman in chapter 1, horrendous ending. Chapter 3, same story. The question is, is it the same woman in chapter 3 as in chapter 1? After reading through 
the book of Hosea a lot closer, I'm inclined to believe that I think it is. I'd originally told you that I don't think it is based on just reading this. However, after, after closer scrutiny, I think it is the same woman. And I think what has happened is there was a horrendous event in, 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 in chapter 1. There was great betrayal in chapter 1, which is why we asked you last week, is betrayal one of the greatest sins? Is it the greatest sin that there is? This woman betrayed the covenant with her husband. In, such, in the same manner that Israel has betrayed the covenant with God. Chapter 2, there seems to be that he's putting her away. He's done with her. He has every reason to throw her out. But what happens in chapter 3? He comes back to Hosea and he says, Go to love a woman beloved of her friends. And the thing that has changed my mind about this is verse 2. That what got her back was that he said, I bought her to me for 15 pieces of silver. There's a word we constantly use throughout the Bible that has reference to this. And as a matter of fact, uh, the thought is used again in chapter 13 and verse 14. And the words in chapter 13 and verse 14 are, I will ransom them from the power of the grave and I will redeem them from death. What has happened to this person? This person has been ransomed from someone who had kidnapped them and held them hostage. And this person has been redeemed from an evil, wicked tyrant. Well, what does that mean? Well, first off, there's a practical lesson that is taught in this. Hosea was a pre-exile prophet. Before they went to the nation of Babylon, Hosea prophesied to them. He encouraged them to repent and avoid the coming judgment upon the nation. But their impenitence sealed their fate and they wound up down in Babylon for 70 years. Nebuchadnezzar comes in and ransacks this nation, leads them away hostage. They now belong to somebody somewhere else. Follow that, right? So what's going to have to happen? God's going to have to raise up someone, and in the book of Isaiah, his name is Cyrus. And he raises up Cyrus, and he tells Cyrus that I will open unto thee the lead gates, and I will show unto thee and uh, uh, declare unto thee the secret places. Uh, the fall of Babylon is a historical event. Not biblical. It's historical. So therefore, it lets you know that the biblical record is true. One night in the midst of Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson's drunken feast, they forgot to lock the gates that go over the river that flow through the middle of Babylon. And in the midst of their drunken feast and their partying and their reveling, they're not paying attention that upstream is Cyrus and his army damming up the river so that when the water flows through, behind them comes Cyrus's army. They come under the gates and they ransack the city. And Babylon falls to the Medes and the Persians. This is uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the great golden statue. Head of gold, arms and, you know, on down 
This is the unfolding of that, of that vision. What eventually leads Israel back to the promised land is this beginning of Cyrus. Comes in, he ransacks Babylon, and it's, at, it's during the Medes and Persians that they're allowed to go back to their homeland. God redeems them, brings them back through the efforts of someone else. You, because of Adam, that's the practical, historical movement. You, because of Adam, are sold under sin. You have been ransacked, ruined, toppled over, and you belong to somebody else for a while. But what happened? You've not been redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, as in this 15 pieces of silver. But what have you been redeemed with? The precious blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. What has happened here but a people who were led away captive have now been brought back and brought back to the fold because of the blood of Christ. In the, so then we come now to Hebrews, uh, to Hosea, chapter 7. <clears throat> this, is, uh, this is an interesting, uh, interesting little uh, study we'd like to look at. <clears throat> in Hosea chapter 7 that we read from earlier, it said that they consider not in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. And now their own doings have beset them about. They are before my face. Um, How do we move from this text in Hosea 7, where God says, I remember all their wickedness, uh, to passages such as Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 12, wherein he says, I will remember their wickedness no more. How do you get from this point to the next? Because we do realize that, that God does not forget like you and I forget. God does not have the capacity to be a forgetful hearer like we do. James reminded us in his little book, uh, be ye uh, doers of the word and not hearers only. Being a forgetful hearer, James addresses that. Uh, we read that in Psalms 106 a while ago. They remembered not his works. They forgot the works of God. Why do we forget? Because we're faulty creatures. That's why we forget. But God is pure and perfect. He can't forget. He's got to do something else with it. Now, keeping that in mind, let's also move to chapter 13. Because I thought, when when you start delving into these things, it causes you to um, really examine some of the ways that you think. So, for example, in uh, Hosea 13, verse 12, it says that the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is hid. So here in, in Hosea 13, and verse 12, when it says that the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up, his sin is hid, what kind of image goes through your mind? You think about something that's hid, we think about something that's put away and out of sight. But to who? It might be hidden from me or it might be hidden from you. 
There's a problem with thinking that what is hidden here has disappeared, I guess is what we're, at, was what we're saying here. There's a problem with thinking that what is hidden here has disappeared. And for that, I want to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32. In Deuteronomy 32, I'd like for us to read uh, a few verses here. Uh, we'll go from Deuteronomy 32, and then we'd like to look at a verse in Job. Uh, Deuteronomy 32 and verse... Well, verse 32, Deuteronomy 32, 32. For their vine is of the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of dragons and the cruel venom of asps. Is not this laid up in store with me and sealed up among my treasures? The Lord is saying he's taking note of the people. And he's taking note that who and what they are is a dreadful thing of wickedness. You notice here, he says that uh, their wine is the poison of dragons and cruel venom of asps. There's nothing good that he lays out about these people he's talking about. Now, when life goes on and people get away with doing wickedness. <clears throat> we have the tendency to question with ourselves whether or not God's paying attention, right? Things happen to you, things happen to me, things happen in this world. And we have the tendency to question, does God care and is God paying attention? Well, notice what the Lord says in verse 34. He says, is not this laid up in store with me? And sealed up among my treasure. God says, I see this. I'm taking note of this. And every bit of this is sealed up with me in my memory. I know it. What's the purpose for that though? Verse 35. To me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. Boy, that's a dreadful verse, isn't it? That is a terrifying verse. You remember, and, and this is quoted in the New Testament, as, as, as a matter of fact. You remember, uh, Peter says, It is written, The vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. That's, this is where he gets it from. and and. Moses writing here in Deuteronomy is reminding us God's in charge of this. Problem is, He's also in charge of your life as well. Ephraim, his sins are bound up and hid. Turn with me now to the book of Job. In Job 14, and verse 17. Job 14 and verse 17 says, My transgression is sealed up in a bag, and thou sowest up mine iniquity. My transgressions are sealed up in a bag. Moses said in Deuteronomy, Isn't this laid up in store in my treasure before me? What are we dealing with here? 
sure that y'all are all asking this question, where is this squirrel rambling to? There was a time when David went out to fight. He went out to fight a man named Goliath. Do y'all remember this story? Ever heard it? What did David do before he went to fight Goliath? Went down to the brook, didn't he? And what did he gather out of the brook? Five smooth stones. Where did he put those smooth stones? Do you remember this? Put them in his shepherd's bag. And at the time appointed when he stood before Goliath, he pulled out one of those stones and sunk it in his forehead and slew the giant. At the time appointed, this great evil came against David and out of his bag, he took a stone and killed the giant. You are not David in that story. You are Goliath. David is Jesus Christ. And any time you oppose him, what out of his bag can he bring about against you to slay you? You know your sin. You know your sin better than I do. I know my sin better than I do. And the problem is, though, we don't know sin better than sin knows sin. There's a lot of things in our life we excuse to get away with. We justify what we do. And if we stood before Christ to, to, to raise our fist in His face, He'd pull one thing out of His bag, and that's all it takes, and He'd slay every one of us. When He says that Ephraim's sin is hid and bound up, I think he's reminding Ephraim, I can pull out of my bag at any time anything against you and slay you. And guess what? That's what happens. Notice here in verse 13. He says the sorrows, uh, we're back to Hosea 13, 13. Wow. 13, 13. You talk about an unlucky chapter. What does he say here? He says the sorrows, well, let, let me back up. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is hid. The sorrows of a travailing woman shall come upon him. He is an unwise son, for he shall not stay long in the place of the breaking forth of children. What's bound up and hid in an expecting woman? The reality of what a child is. In the days before sonograms and ultrasounds and this, that, and the others and all these tests, you didn't know what you had until the child was born. You didn't know if it was a boy or a girl. You didn't know if it was healthy or unhealthy or if it'd be stillborn. All those questions were all hidden in the womb. But there came a time when the travailing pains of childbirth comes upon a woman. And at that point, when those travailing pains come upon her, she doesn't do anything else. Because childbirth has come upon her. When an invading army came into Israel in surprise, there was nothing else that Israel could do. The ball games stopped. The entertainment stopped. The fun and frolicness stopped. In your own life, when God gets ready to execute personal judgment because of impenitence, everything else in your life will stop. And that's what he's talking about here to Ephraim. He's talking about that to them, to us, to the nation of America. In an impenitent lifestyle, when God's waiting comes to an end, 
Judgment is the next thing that proceeds. There came a time when the fullness of time was come that God sent forth His own Son. Made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. Remember that text? That's found in Galatians. So there is a sense in which our sins are hid. There's a sense in which our sins are hid that God Himself only knows them. But then you also remember what is written in Psalm 103 wherein David says, as far as the east is from the west, so hath he uh, set our sins away from him. In the book of uh, Isaiah, chapter 38 and verse 17, he says, thou hast sealed them up in sin and put them behind thy back. In the book of Micah, chapter 7 and verse 19, he says, thou hast thrown them into the depths of the sea. So I wonder, I wonder if there's not an image that is painted here. That our sins were sealed up in a bag in the remembrance of God until the time Christ came. And as Christ hung upon that cross, my sins, your sins, all the sins of the elect family were opened up and brought out as the evidence that's collected at a crime scene is sealed up and it's bagged up and it's put in storage until you stand before the judge. And then what happens? All the evidence is brought right out. And they open the bags and they say, we found this and we found that. And here's his fingerprints and here's his blood. And he did this and she did that. And here's all the evidence against you guilty sinners. And it's here Christ hangs upon this cross. The bag is open. The sin is brought out. The evidence is presented for six hours against you and against me and against all the family of God. And what happens? As he's opening this bag and bringing this bag out and pouring this bag out, it's also being thrown somewhere. It's also something's being done with it. And Paul tells us in Hebrews that he came and put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Sin is not something that God said, well, I'll just ignore it. It's not what God does. God dealt with it. And I have a feeling, I have a wonder, I have a speculation as I look at God standing in heaven, pouring out His judgment on God the Son there on the cross. Is He not taking this bag and throwing it into the depths of the sea, into the depths of the redemption of the blood of Christ that flowed from Emmanuel's veins? Is He not telling Hosea and us, Your impenitence has sent My Son to the cross. But my goodness and my graciousness has hidden your sins from me. Not that they didn't exist, but that they are now covered by the blood of the Lamb. It's not that the grace of God is too sappy. It's that the sinfulness of men 
is too sinful. It's not that God is being too gracious to people. It's that the people are not grateful for what God has done. We saw that in Israel. We see that in Israel, don't we? We look at the nation of Israel here. We look at Ephraim and we say, Ephraim, open your eyes. Can't you pay attention to the God of glory that's standing in front of you? And then we look at ourselves. The things that we see in Ephraim make us sick, don't they? Do we see the same things in our own life? What I see in somebody else is appalling. What I see in someone else is atrocious. Do I see the same things in my own life? How silly we are as sinful people to hold others to a standard we hold we don't even hold our own selves to. Realizing that if God held us to the same standard that we hold other people, where would we be? This is why the prayer is, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive others. There is a final verse here. In Hosea 14 that I think should bring great hope to us. There's a struggle in this life that we live every single day. Very seldom do we do the right thing all the time. So that's a ridiculous statement. It is a ridiculous statement. We, we very seldom do the right thing all the time. What's holding you back? Oh, there's a lot of things holding me back. You could say it's the environment that you live in. You, you, you can say it's everybody around you. Uh, you can say society is, is bringing me down. Well, I can kind of give you a little bit of that. I mean, if anybody's ever driven in 5 o'clock traffic, I know that your attitude is not the same at, outside of traffic as it is inside traffic. I know that having to drive through the middle of downtown at rush hour is a hateful thing. But can you just stop and pause just for a second and look at a man named Adam created in the garden? Where was his traffic? There was no traffic. There was no other people. It was him and one woman. You can't say that his parents did it to him because God was his father. But I will recognize we have all had some really wretched parents in life. All of us at some point or another have had to deal with somebody who was unreasonable in your life. But look at Adam. God was his father. He still did the wrong thing. His environment was perfect. He's in a garden, him and another woman. What I wouldn't give to just live in a garden with my wife and that and nothing else. 
His economy was great. He didn't really have to work for anything he got. It grew out of the ground. God watered it with a mist from heaven. I don't know what tending the garden meant in Genesis, but it couldn't mean anything like it means nowadays. And he threw every bit of that away for what? Speculation. We look at our own life and we realize we have thrown away a lot. A lot of what God has given us for hope of help in this world. He reminds us here in uh, Hosea 13 and verse 4, he says, there is no Savior beside me. God reminds Hosea to tell Ephraim, there's no Savior besides me. Now, if that doesn't mean that Jesus Christ is also God, that's a whole other story. But is Jesus your Savior? Uh, God says there's no Savior besides me, so if Jesus is your Savior, He's also God. But look at this. You know, when we stand before God in, in all glory, when we stand before God in all perfection, you know one of the great things that's going to be able to be said about us? Hosea 14, verse 8. Ephraim shall say, What have I to do any more with I? There's going to be a great time when we stand before the God of glory. And we are able to say in all truthfulness and all honesty, I'm done with idols. I'm done with the little things that rise up in my heart that I give devotion to instead of giving my devotion to God. I'm done with the things that rise up in life that I give my service to instead of giving my service to God. I'm done with the little piddly, ugly, sinful, nasty, wicked ways in life that hinder and harm not just my walk. That's beside the point. The little things that I do in life that I make such a big deal out of hurt my God. And they're the reason He had to come to the cross. It wasn't that I'm out here murdering six million people. It wasn't that I'm out here burning an entire city down. What did I think was so important that I had to have outside of Christ? One day, because of the gospel of grace, you'll stand in heaven and say, I'm done with these idols. And Christ will have proper place in your life. Thank you for your good and patient attention.